Robinson Crusoe, Part 1. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories audio production. The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner by Daniel Defoe I was born in the year 1632, in the city of York, of a good family, though not of that country, my father being a foreigner of Bremen who settled first at Hull. He got a good estate by merchandise, and leaving off his trade, lived afterward at York, from whence he had married my mother, whose relations were named Robinson, a very good family in that country, and from whom I was called Robinson Krotznauer. But by the usual corruption of words in England, we are now called, nay, we call ourselves, and write our name, Crusoe, and so my companions always called me. I had two elder brothers, one of whom was lieutenant-colonel to an English regiment of foot in Flanders, formerly commanded by the famous Colonel Lockhart, and was killed at the battle near Dunkirk against the Spaniards. What became of my second brother I never knew any more than my father or mother knew what became of me. Being the third son of the family, and not bred to any trade, my head began to be filled very early with rambling thoughts. My father, who was very ancient, had given me a competent share of learning, as far as house education and a country free school generally goes, and designed me for the law. But I would be satisfied with nothing but going to sea, and my inclination to this led me so strongly against the will, nay, the commands of my father, and against all the entreaties and persuasions of my mother and other friends, that there seemed to be something fatal in that propension of nature tending directly to the life of misery which was to befall me. My father, a wise and grave man, gave me serious and excellent counsel against what he foresaw was my design. He called me one morning into his chamber where he was confined by the gout and expostulated very warmly with me upon this subject. He asked me what reasons more than a mere wandering inclination I had for leaving my father's house and my native country where I might be well introduced and had a prospect of raising my fortune by application and industry with a life of ease and pleasure. He told me I might judge of the happiness of this state by this one thing, namely, that this was the state of life which all other people envied, that kings have frequently lamented the miserable consequences of being born to great things, and wish they had been placed in the middle of the two extremes, between the mean and the great, that the wise man gave his testimony to this as the just standard of true felicity, when he prayed to have neither poverty nor riches. He bade me observe it, and I should always find that the calamities of life were shared among the upper and lower part of mankind, but that the middle station had the fewest disasters, and was not exposed to so many vicissitudes as the higher or lower part of mankind. Nay, they were not subjected to so many distempers and uneasinesses either of body or mind, as those were who, by vicious living, luxury, and extravagances on one hand, or by hard labor, want of necessaries, and mean or insufficient diet on the other hand, bring distempers upon themselves by the natural consequences of their way of living, that the middle station of life was calculated for all kind of virtues and all kind of enjoyments, that peace and plenty were the handmaids of a middle fortune, that temperance, moderation, quietness, health, society, 
all agreeable diversions and all desirable pleasures were the blessings attending the middle station of life, that this way men went silently and smoothly through the world, and comfortably out of it, not embarrassed with the labors of the hands or of the head, not sold to the life of slavery for daily bread, or harassed with perplexed circumstances which rob the soul of peace and the body of rest, not enraged with the passion of envy or secret burning lust of ambition for great things, but in easy circumstances, sliding gently through the world, and sensibly tasting the sweets of living without the bitter, feeling that they are happy, and learning by every day's experience to know it more sensibly. After this, he pressed me earnestly, and in the most affectionate manner, not to play the young man, not to precipitate myself into miseries which nature and the station of life I was born in seemed to have provided against, that I was under no necessity of seeking my bread, that he would do well for me, and endeavor to enter me fairly into the station of life which he had been just recommending to me, and that if I was not very easy and happy in the world, it must be my mere fate or fault that must hinder it, and that he should have nothing to answer for, having thus discharged his duty in warning me against measures which he knew would be to my hurt, in a word, that as he would do very kind things for me, if I would stay and settle at home as he directed, so he would not have so much hand in my misfortunes as to give me any encouragement to go away. And to close all, he told me I had my elder brother for an example, to whom he had used the same earnest persuasions to keep him from going into the low country wars, but could not prevail, his young desires prompting him to run into the army, where he was killed. And though he said he would not cease to pray for me, yet he would venture to say to me that if I did take this foolish step, God would not bless me, and I would have leisure hereafter to reflect upon having neglected his counsel when there might be none to assist in my recovery. I observed in this last part of his discourse, which was truly prophetic, though I suppose my father did not know it to be so himself, I say, I observed the tears run down his face very plentifully, and especially when he spoke of my brother who was killed, and that when he spoke of my having leisure to repent and none to assist me, he was so moved that he broke off the discourse, and told me his heart was so full he could say no more to me. I was sincerely affected with this discourse, as indeed, who could be otherwise? And I resolved not to think of going abroad any more, but to settle at home according to my father's desire. But alas, a few days wore it all off, and, in short, to prevent any of my father's further importunities, in a few weeks after I resolved to run quite away from him. However, I did not act so hastily neither as my first heat of resolution prompted, but I took my mother at a time when I thought her a little pleasanter than ordinary, and told her that my thoughts were so entirely bent upon seeing the world that I should never settle to anything with resolution enough to go through with it, and my father had better give me his consent than force me to go without it, that I was now eighteen years old, which was too late to go apprentice to a trade or clerk to an attorney, that I was sure if I did, I should never serve out my time and I should certainly run away from my master before my time was out, and go to sea. And if she would speak to my father to let me go but one voyage abroad, if I came home again and did not like it, I would go no more, and I would promise by a double diligence to recover that time I had lost. This put my mother into a great passion. She told me she knew it would be to no purpose to speak to my father upon any such subject, 
that he knew too well what was my interest to give his consent to anything so much for my hurt, and that she wondered how I could think of any such thing after such a discourse as I had had from my father, and such kind and tender expressions as she knew my father had used to me, and that, in short, if I would ruin myself, there was no help for me. But I might depend, I should never have their consent to it, that for her part she would not have so much hand in my destruction, and I should never have it to say that my mother was willing when my father was not. Though my mother refused to move it to my father, yet, as I heard afterwards, she reported all the discourse to him, and that my father, after showing a great concern at it, said to her with a sigh, That boy might be happy if he would stay at home, but if he goes abroad, he will be the most miserable wretch that was ever born. I can give no consent to it. It was not till almost a year after this that I broke loose, though in the meantime, I continued obstinately deaf to all proposals of settling to business, and frequently expostulating with my father and mother about their being so positively determined against what they knew my inclinations prompted me to. But being one day at Hull, where I went casually, and without any purpose of making an elopement that time, but I say, being there, and one of my companions being about to sail to London in his father's ship, and prompting me to go with them, with the common allurement of seafaring men, namely, that it should cost me nothing for my passage, I consulted neither father nor mother any more, nor so much as sent them word of it, but leaving them to hear of it as they might, without asking God's blessing or my father's, without any consideration of circumstances or consequences, and in an ill hour, God knows, on the 1st of September, 1651, I went on board a ship bound for London. Never any young adventurer's misfortunes, I believe, began sooner, or continued longer than mine. The ship was no sooner gotten out of the Humber, but the wind began to blow, and the waves to rise in a most frightful manner. And as I had never been at sea before, I was most inexpressibly sick in body, and terrified in mind. I began now, seriously, to reflect upon what I had done, and how justly I was overtaken by the judgment of heaven for my wicked leaving my father's house, and abandoning my duty, all the good counsel of my parents, my father's tears and my mother's entreaties, came now fresh into my mind, and my conscience, which was not yet come to the pitch of hardness to which it has been since, reproached me with the contempt of advice, and the breach of my duty to God and my father. All this while, the storm increased, and the sea, which I had never been upon before, went very high, though nothing like what I have seen many times since, no, nor like what I saw a few days after, but it was enough to affect me then, who was but a young sailor and had never known anything of the matter. I expected every wave would have swallowed us up, and that every time the ship fell down, as I thought, in the trough or hollow of the sea, we should never rise more and in this agony of mind I made many vows and resolutions, that if it would please God here to spare my life this one voyage, if ever I got my foot upon dry land again, I would go directly home to my father, and never set it into a ship again while I lived, that I would take his advice, and never run myself into such miseries as these any more. Now I saw plainly the goodness of his observations about the middle station of life, how easy, how comfortably he had lived all his days, and never had been exposed to tempests at sea, 
or troubles on shore, and I resolved that I would, like a true repenting prodigal, go home to my father. These wise and sober thoughts continued all the while the storm continued, and indeed some time after, but the next day the wind was abated and the sea calmer, and I began to be a little inured to it. However, I was very grave for all that day, being also a little seasick still, but towards night the weather cleared up, the wind was quite over, and a charming fine evening followed. The sun went down perfectly clear and rose so the next morning, and having little or no wind and a smooth sea, the sun shining upon it, the sight was, as I thought, the most delightful that ever I saw. I had slept well in the night, and was now no more seasick, but very cheerful, looking with wonder upon the sea that was so rough and terrible the day before, and could be so calm and so pleasant in so little time after. And now, lest my good resolution should continue, my companion, who had indeed enticed me away, comes to me. "'Well, Bob,' says he, clapping me upon the shoulder, "'how do you do after it? I warrant you were frighted, weren't you? Last night, when it blew but a capful of wind.' "'A capful?' do you call it? said I. It was a terrible storm. A storm, you fool you, replies he. Do you call that a storm? Why, it was nothing at all. Give us but a good ship and sea-room, and we think nothing of such a squall as that. But you're but a freshwater sailor, Bob. Come, let us make a bowl of punch, and we'll forget all that. Do you see what charming weather it is now? To make short this sad part of my story, we went the old way of all sailors. The punch was made, and I was made drunk with it, and in that one night's wickedness I drowned all my repentance, all my reflections upon my past conduct, and all resolutions for my future. In a word, as the sea was returned to its smoothness of surface, and settled calmness by the abatement of that storm, so the hurry of my thoughts being over, my fears and apprehensions of being swallowed up by the sea being forgotten, and the current of my former desires returned, I entirely forgot the vows and promises that I had made in my distress. I found, indeed, some intervals of reflection, and the serious thoughts did, as it were, endeavor to return again sometimes, but I shook them off, and roused myself from them, as it were, from a distemper, and applying myself to drink and company, soon mastered the return of those fits, for so I called them, and I had, in five or six days, got as complete a victory over conscience as any young fellow that resolved not to be troubled with it could desire but I was to have another trial for it still, and Providence, as in such cases generally it does, resolved to leave me entirely without excuse. For if I would not take this for a deliverance, the next was to be such a one as the worst and most hardened wretch among us would confess both the danger and the mercy. The sixth day of our being at sea we came into Yarmouth Roads. The wind having been contrary and the weather calm, we had made but little way since the storm. Here we were obliged to come to an anchor, and here we lay, the wind continuing contrary, namely at southwest, for seven or eight days, during which time a great many ships from Newcastle came into the same roads as the common harbor where the ships might wait for a wind from the river. We had not, however, rid here so long, but should have tided it up the river, but that the wind blew too fresh, and after we had lain four or five days blew very hard. However, the roads being reckoned as good as a harbor, the anchorage good, and our ground tackle very strong, our men were unconcerned, and not in the least apprehensive of danger, but spent the time in rest and mirth, after the manner of the sea. But the eighth day in the morning the wind increased, 
and we had all hands to work to strike our topmasts and make everything snug and close that the ship might ride as easy as possible. By noon, the sea went very high indeed, and our ship rid forecastle in, shipped several seas, and we thought once or twice our anchor had come home, upon which our master ordered out the sheet anchor, so that we rode with two anchors ahead and the cables veered out to the better end. By this time it blew a terrible storm indeed, and now I began to see terror and amazement in the faces even of the seamen themselves. The master, though vigilant in the business of preserving the ship, yet, as he went in and out of his cabin by me, I could hear him softly to himself say several times, Lord, be merciful to us. We shall be all lost. We shall be all undone, and the like. During these first hurries I was stupid, lying still in my cabin, which was in the steerage, and cannot describe my temper. I could ill reassume the first penitence which I had so apparently trampled upon, and hardened myself against. I thought the bitterness of death had been passed, and that this would be nothing like the first. But when the master himself came by me, as I said just now, and said we should be all lost, I was dreadfully frighted. I got up out of my cabin and looked out, but such a dismal sight I never saw. The sea went mountains high, and broke upon us every three or four minutes. When I could look about, I could see nothing but distress round us. Two ships that rid near us, we found, had cut their masts by the board, being deep loaden, and our men cried out that a ship which rid about a mile ahead of us was foundered. Two more ships, being driven from their anchors, were run out of the roads to sea at all adventures, and that with not a mast standing. The light ships fared the best, as not so much laboring in the sea but two or three of them drove and came close by us, running away with only their spritsail out before the wind. Towards evening, the mate and boatswain begged the master of our ship to let them cut away the foremast, which he was very unwilling to do, but the boatswain protesting to him that if he did not the ship would founder, he consented, and when they had cut away the foremast, the mainmast stood so loose and shook the ship so much they were obliged to cut her away also and make a clear deck. Anyone may judge. What a condition I must be in at all this, who was but a young sailor, and who had been in such a fright before at but a little. But if I can express at this distance the thoughts I had about me at that time, I was in tenfold more horror of mind, upon account of my former convictions, and the having returned from them to the resolutions I had wickedly taken at first, than I was at death itself. And these— added to the terror of the storm, put me into such a condition that I can by no words describe it. But the worst was not come yet. The storm continued with such fury that the seamen themselves acknowledged they had never known a worse. We had a good ship, but she was deep-loaden and wallowed in the sea that the seamen every now and then cried out she would founder. It was my advantage in one respect that I did not know what they meant by founder till I inquired. However, the storm was so violent that I saw what is not often seen, the master, the boatswain, and some others more sensible than the rest, at their prayers, and expecting every moment when the ship would go to the bottom. In the middle of the night, and under all the rest of our distresses, one of the men that had been down on purpose to sea cried out, we had sprung a leak. Another said there was four-foot water in the hold. Then all hands were called to the pump. At that very word my heart, as I thought, died within me and I fell backwards upon the side of my bed where I sat, into the cabin. However, the men roused me, and told me that I, who was able to do nothing before, was as well able to pump as another, 
at which I stirred up and went to the pump and worked very hardly. While this was doing, the master, seeing some light colliers who, not able to ride out the storm, were obliged to slip and run away to sea and would not come near us, ordered to fire a gun as a signal of distress. I, who knew nothing what that meant, was so surprised that I thought the ship had broke or some dreadful thing happened. In a word, I was so surprised that I fell down in a swoon. As this was a time when everybody had his own life to think of, nobody minded me or what was become of me, but another man stepped up to the pump and thrusting me aside with his foot, let me lie, thinking I had been dead, and it was a great while before I came to myself. That's the end of Robinson Crusoe, Part 1. Come back in about a week for Part 2. Thank you for listening. Candlelight Stories Audio Production